Good morning. I don't usually preach from up here on the high hill. I'm usually down there, but because of communion this morning, this gives me a little bit more space. So, is worship found in this building? Is it in these four walls? Is it in brick and mortar? What about these pews, these wooden pews? Is worship found there? Maybe worship is found in the stained glass. That's where it's found. Uh, Maybe the chancel flowers, the plates, these doors. Maybe it's found in the organ or the piano or the guitar or maybe in our favorite song. Where is worship? Have we lost it? Do we even know or care to find it? Worshiping God is the lifeblood of this church. If worship thrives, this church will thrive. If worship dies, this church will die. And it's simply that important. Where is worship? Let's find it together. Jesus is the leading authority on worship. Jesus is the leading authority on worship. To be a leading authority in some field of study or uh, discipline or profession is to be an expert among the most prominent of that field. Dr. Benjamin Carson is a leading authority in medicine. Uh, Dr. Carson is an emeritus professor of neurosurgery, oncology, plastic surgery, and pediatrics at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Brilliant man. He has an incredible list of accomplishments, and his accomplishments leave no room for debate. He's a leading authority in medicine. He just is. He's an amazing man. Jesus took action in the temple because he has exhaustive knowledge of everything and is the leading authority in everything, including worship. And yet these enraged Jewish religious leaders, probably from the Sanhedrin, call his authority into question. The question of authority. The question of authority. Verse 18, take a look. Keep your Bibles open if you're not there. John 2, verse 18. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, do you have a sign? Who do you think you are? Walking in here, cleaning out the temple like you're so pious. Who do you think you are? What's your sign, Jesus? What are you going to do and show us that proves that you have authority to do what you just did? That's what they're getting at. And thus begins this contention between the religious leaders of the day and Jesus. Their question displayed their contempt for Jesus. You might not see it on the surface. Notice they didn't humbly repent of what just happened in the temple. Or how they abused the temple. How they obstructed worship. That wasn't their focus. Instead, they called into question the authority of Jesus. Instead, they turned the interrogation light from themselves onto Jesus, a classic move of self justification. Divert attention from the real issue in my heart by attacking someone else. And that's what they did. How perfectly prideful. You see, genuine humility admits. Sin and responds to open, accurate rebuke with repentance and faith. That's what humility looks like. 
they didn't do that. Now, why were none of the miracles that Jesus did ever good enough to convert these people to trust Him, to place their faith in Him? Because calloused hearts, hardened hearts, refuse to believe. They refuse to cave. They flat out could not deny the signs of Jesus because His signs were so evident, done right in front of their eyes, where they saw them. And so because they were too obvious, the only thing that they were left to do was to attack Him. And that's just what they did. Jesus dealt with something similar in Matthew 12, 38 and 39. The scribes and the Pharisees say to Jesus, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. They sought this supernatural display, this sign, but they sought it with evil intent. Many people still object to Christianity in a similar way. They interrogate Jesus. They interrogate the authority of his word. They interrogate creation science. They interrogate the reliability of the Bible. Or maybe even they interrogate you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not talking about legitimate, heartfelt um, questioning in the heart that out of interest for it, just wanting to know that craving. I'm not talking about that, but an arrogant attack on the authority of Jesus Christ and the Bible that originates from none other than self-defense. I want to defend me, and so I will attack something outside of me so I can get off the hook. Jesus gave them an awesome answer. He answered it, the answer of authority. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. That's fantastic. But there's more here than what meets the eye. You really have to understand what Jesus meant by what he said. The temple that was, that was cleaned out, that he just emptied, all right, was Herod's temple, which was still at that time in process of expansion and renovation. It was a magnificent temple mount. You can still see some of the foundation there today of that same temple mount uh, at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And if you go on Google and look up Wailing Wall, Jerusalem, and then you get the street view from this amazing satellite work that Google has, you can actually see the Wailing Wall, and you'll be able to tell the original stones you can see that were there when Jesus would have been there. It's just an amazing piece of archaeology that you can see right from your computer at home. Well, this is what they thought Jesus meant in verse 19. Destroy Herod's temple, this physical temple, this stone temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. A complete engineering impossibility. All right. Now, how do we know that? Look at verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? That's probably something I would have said. There's no way. No way. No way. And I would have missed it. And they missed it. They just flat out missed where Jesus was going with this. Um, they couldn't make sense of him. And I guess they really didn't want to make sense of him because they didn't really give him any follow-up questions to really understand. They were immovable and they were spiritually blind. And later on at his trial, people twisted his words and used them against him. 
In Matthew 26, 60 and 61, two false witnesses came forward and they said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Was that what he said? That's not what he said. That's not what he said. He never said he would destroy it. They would destroy it and he would raise it up in three days. What was he talking about in verse 19? What did he give as the basis for his authority on all things? His own resurrection. His resurrection. A lot of things authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. Legitimate things. But his resurrection is at the top of the list. When Jesus said, destroy this temple, he wasn't referring to stone. He wasn't referring to mortar or brick or a building. He was referring to himself. He could have raised that building in three days by a miracle of his divine power, but that's not what he was saying. He was referring to himself. Jesus is the temple. We get that from verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Christ spoke with certainty in verse 19 because his death was planned before the foundation of the world. Before anything was ever made, Jesus knew what his mission was. He planned this out within the Trinity. Acts 4, 27 and 28 say, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God predestined the death of Jesus Christ on that cross. And he used Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the Israelites to accomplish his purpose and his plan just as he had designed it. Outside of time, God appointed Jesus to die and Jesus was in on the plan. Jesus knew his mission. According to Revelation 13, 8, Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Don't miss verse 19, that Jesus raised himself from the dead. It was his power. It was his authority. It was his sovereignty over death that raised him to new life. In John 10, 18, Jesus said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That is supreme authority. He told the woman at the well in John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection. But the Bible also says God raised him up and that he was raised from the dead by the glory of the father. The Jews asked him what sign he had as authority and he said, my resurrection, will that do? Is that good enough for you? Is that good enough to convince you that I am who I said I am? Is that good enough to show you that I am God with supreme power over the entire universe? Is, is that good enough? Or are you looking for something more? Something different? Something you weren't expecting? He has supreme power. He knows all things. He knows the future. He knows what's coming. He is omniscient and all-knowing. He knows all there is to know. He knew what the Jews would do before they did it and before they even know, knew what they were going to do. 
What gave Jesus authority to cleanse the temple, what gave him authority to reform worship was his resurrection from the dead, a sign pointing to his divinity and power over sin, over Satan, over hell, over the grave, over death, and the means by which people become worshipers. People become worshipers because they are gripped by the resurrection of the dead and God changes their life by grace. That's how worshipers are made. But the Jews wanted a sign, and he would give one. And when they saw it, they would still completely ignore it. They would still miss it, and they still wouldn't believe. You see, our need is not miracles. Our need is not some supernatural display from heaven. Our need is truth. Our need is reality. We need the Holy Spirit to open our blind eyes because many, many people saw the miracles of Jesus unchanged, didn't care. And they saw it right, be- right before their eyes. So when you start getting the inkling, you know what, if I just would see God manifest himself in some spectacular supernatural way, then I could believe because, you know, the Bible's just a book, but I want to really see something, God, you wouldn't believe. You wouldn't believe because thousands of people did the same thing, wouldn't believe. Miracles not what we need. Will it take a supernatural bolt of lightning from heaven for you to finally get serious about Jesus? Are you waiting for a supernatural healing in order to believe and trust him? What if it never comes? Miracles were never sufficient to produce faith, only to authenticate the object of faith. What we all need is the Holy Spirit to work through gospel truths to produce faith in us. We have the supernatural word of God. We have the supernatural Bible, the living and active, breathed out word of God as power for salvation for everyone who will come and believe it. I know in miracles are insufficient for faith. I know it. Um, because the Jews finally encountered the resurrection. They got what they asked for, and they completely ignored the truth and the implications to their own lives, and they lied to cover it all up. It's simply stunning what they did. In Matthew 27, the Jews remembered that Jesus said he was going to rise from the dead. And that's fresh in their mind. And so they tell Pilate, the, the Roman governor, they assumed his disciples would attempt to steal his body to make it look like they, that he had actually raised from the dead. And so they're sensitive of that. And so they ask Pilate to seal and secure the tomb under Roman jurisdiction, the military superpower of the day. Remove all possibility, right? Let's get this secured so this can't happen. With the authority and seal of Rome, Pilate gave them a guard of war-trained soldiers to secure the tomb. They guarded the tomb with their lives. And I say that because if a Roman guard was caught sleeping on duty, he would be executed. That was punishable by death. Then this earthquake hit because of a terrifying angel descending from heaven. The angel rolled the stone away and sat on it. I think that's kind of funny. He's just like, see what I just did? Boom, I'm sitting down. So he sat down. His form is flashing like lightning. Now, that's a terrifying scene when a form is flashing lightning and you're watching all of this. And so naturally, the soldiers fell down like dead men, paralyzed in fear. They just didn't know what to do. Now, wouldn't that be the last straw? 
Wouldn't you just flat out believe at that point? What's holding you back? Isn't it um, intellectually responsible to embrace Jesus by faith when all this is going down? Check out what happened. This just is amazing. Matthew 28, 11 through 14. While they were going, behold, some of the guard, so we know there was a bunch of them, and some of them went, and um, they go into the city, and they told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while they were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of, the tr- out of trouble. Jesus had just risen from the dead. And instead of believing based on hardcore concrete evidence, they did something incredible. They bribed the guards and said, let's keep this on the down low, shall we? Let's not spread this around too much. And you know what, if Pilate or the governor, if he's, if he's got an issue with you, we'll, we'll get you out of trouble. Because sleeping, as the lie said, would get you executed. They suppress the truth. The details of their conspiracy is absolutely, they're ridiculous. They're not even close to being right. Armed Roman guards sleeping while on duty, an offense punishable by death. Not only that, completely humiliating to the guards themselves. That would have been embarrassing. Armed Roman guards sleeping and not noticing the disciples of Jesus rolling away a massive rock from the tomb and taking the body. Disciples rolling away an official Roman sealed tomb, taking out the body without anybody noticing. Or even if it went this route, untrained disciples of Jesus overtaking military trained soldiers. None of it makes sense. It's not even close. You know what makes sense? The resurrection makes sense. Because that's what's happened. That that was reality. Miracles do not produce faith. God produces faith. Miracles don't change hearts. God changes hearts. Miracles don't make worshipers. God makes worshipers. The resurrection is all the authority Jesus needs. He proved himself to you, church. What are you waiting to see to embrace Jesus all out and to give everything that you have? Is the resurrection not good enough? Is a man that said, I'm going to raise, and he does it, not good enough to convince you that he is God and worthy to be praised and followed and cherished and treasured with everything that you have? He is the leading authority on worship, and he possessed the right, he possessed the responsibility to cleanse that temple. His resurrection is the authority the authentication, uh, authentication of his authority on everything. And, uh, you know, our faith in Jesus Christ, our worship in him is not a blind leap. It's just not. It's based on evidence. It's based on reliable eyewitness. That's a myth that people say, oh, you're just taking a blind lift to de-intellectualize Christianity. Christianity is based upon historic reality documented by reliable and reasonable eyewitnesses and further substantiated by sources outside of the biblical account, outside of the Bible. Christianity has logical, rational, historical, archaeological, scientific, economic, and experiential appeal, and on and on and on. 
Christianity is absolute truth. And God-honoring worship is built upon that absolute truth. True worship is built upon the foundation of truth. Truth. We can't make sense of anything if we don't have truth. A, A basis from which to build all things. You can't make sense of the world without truth. Without some authority. Truth is reality. Relativism, which our culture, you got to know if you haven't seen it, is highly relativistic. Hey, whatever truth for me is good for me. Whatever truth is good for you is good. You determine what truth is. That's intellectually dishonest. It's intellectually dishonest because truth is not determined by individual preference, but what actually is. This is not hard. All right, here's an example. A guy takes a lawn chair and he puts it right in the middle of a train track and he sits down believing there is no train. He hears the train coming, but to him he only hears birds chirping. He sees the train coming, but sees only the wishful thinking of others that there is a train. The train is approaching quickly, but he chooses to believe the train is not coming because for him truth is relative. Here's a question for you. Will the truth make an impact on him? (laughs) May I suggest the train is reality. An unchangeable absolute. The train is. And the train is coming. The reality cannot be changed by simply changing the perspective on reality. What matters is what's actually true, and perspectives must adjust to reality, not the other way around. Something happened at that tomb years ago, and it is reality, and either Christians are right or Christians are wrong, but based on the evidence, based on the reliable eyewitness account, based on the archaeology, based on the whole Old Testament and what it said and prophecies that were fulfilled, and based on the authority of God's word, Christianity is absolute truth and reality. Jesus walked out of that tomb. He's still alive. Verse 22 says, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Verse 22, when he raised from the dead, an eyewitness wrote that, someone who had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ, someone who had zero reason to believe that he raised if he didn't actually see it in front of his face. Though Jesus was hugely famous and everyone knows where to look for his body, if we wanted to look, we'd know where to go. No one's ever produced a body. Where is the body of Jesus, the most famous man of all of history? Where is it? You know, I'll stop believing in Christ when someone shows me his body. A few important things to see in verse 22. Number one, Jesus was actually raised from the dead. He's alive. The evidence for this is fascinating and persuasive. We can't go into all the evidence for his resurrection, but it is absolutely compelling if you do research on it. Uh, Check out, uh, what's what's the book? A Case for Christ, uh, Lee Strobel, and just read. Uh, The evidence converted that man, and he said, I'll be a Christian, because that's just, you can't argue with the evidence. Um, what the world wants you to believe is that there is no evidence and that's it's some like lofty weird idea that is just invented so that we can feel better about ourselves. 
No, there's hardcore evidence, manuscript evidence, historical evidence, archaeological. Take a look at it. All right. Number two, the scripture was actually proven true. Verse 22 says the disciples believed the scripture of the Old Testament. Seeing the resurrected Jesus Christ built their confidence in the truth of God's word because all that was written before Jesus came true or will come true. You can trust the Bible. It has never been disproven. Number three, the word of Jesus was actually proven true. He called his shot. All right? He honored his promise. He fulfilled his own prophecy. Jesus can be trusted because what he said would happen, happened. Therefore, what he says will happen, will happen. That's his track record to honor what he said. So all worship, even when people worship other things, is defined by some authority, some basis upon which you build worship, what you believe to be true. People worship many things because they believe those things are most important, most true. So you'll see worshipers, like our culture is loaded with worship, not the worship of God necessarily, but the worship of sports, money, sex, alcohol, partying, whatever it is, you'll see that they believe in those things, that they will give them what they most crave. They believe those things to be true and tangible and experiential, and, uh, and some believe God. Absolute truth is outside of us, and worship is shaped by that absolute truth, directed by the transcendent authority of Jesus Christ. He dictates what worship is all about. Now, last week we saw Jesus cleanse the temple because worship had been distorted and the center of worship was lost. Wealth extinguished worship. Self-interest undermined satisfaction in God. Holy gain was replaced by unholy gain. And zeal for the worship of God consumed Jesus. It just overwhelmed him. And he brought authoritative reform to preserve true worship. But as Jesus worked in his life, as he ministered, the focus changed from a place to a person. Something greater than the temple had arrived. Jesus is the supernatural center of worship. Jesus is the supernatural center of worship. Worship is not about brick and mortar. Worship is not about city or town. Worship is not about hymn books or PowerPoint, organs or guitars, or even pews or land grants from William Penn's family. Worship is much different than that. Worship is about Jesus Christ, and he is the center or the place of worship. We go to him. We worship in him. You see, the temple was the place of worship, but something greater came. Verse 19 Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then skip down to verse 21. He was speaking about the temple of his body. For many years, God dwelt in the temple, his presence among the people in this structure. But now, God was in the flesh. The temple was really all about, all along, it was all about Jesus. Priests served in the temple because Jesus is our faithful high priest. Sacrifices were offered on the altar in the temple because Jesus is our final sacrifice that atones for sin. There was a shining light on the lampstand because Jesus is the light of the world. There was the bread of presence in the temple because Jesus is the bread of life. He is Emmanuel, God with us. There was a basin of washing because Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. 
There was a veil because Jesus is the gateway to God. There was an altar of incense because Jesus is our intercessor and mediator and the sweet fragrance to God and to his people. The reference to the temple and all it contained signified, Jesus says in, in, in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you something greater. Something greater than the temple is here. What is greater than the temple? What is greater than the splendid, just huge, big, beautiful display of that temple? Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Worship happens in and through him. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Why? Because it wasn't about location. It wasn't about where you were. It was about the person and work of Jesus Christ, a better temple. D.A. Carson in his book Scandalous writes a powerful explanation of this point. And I think it states it really well. It's a pretty long quote, but... I'll try to read it with some enthusiasm so you can stick with it. Here we go. The point is that under the terms of the old covenant, the temple was the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. This was the place of sacrifice, the place of atonement for sin. But this side of the cross where Jesus, by his sacrifice, pays for our sin... Jesus himself becomes the great meeting place between a holy God and his sinful people. Thus, he becomes the temple, the meeting place between God and his people. It is not as if Jesus in his incarnation adequately serves as the temple of God. That is a huge mistake. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. It is in Jesus' death, in his resurrection, and in, in his destruction, and in his resurrection three days later that Jesus meets our needs and reconciles us to God, becoming the temple, the supreme meeting place between God and sinners. To use Paul's language, we do not simply preach Christ, rather we preach Christ crucified. End of quote. You want to encounter God do you want to know him? Do you want to encounter his power, his grace, his glory, his everything? Then you must go to the person and work of Jesus Christ because outside of him, you can't experience God. Outside of him, you can't experience real worship. You can worship a lot of other things, but you can't worship the almighty God without Jesus. It's simple. Jesus is the meeting place between a holy God and us, the unworthy men and women. Everyone who worships God, who encounters God, does so in Christ Jesus, by grace, through faith. Without Jesus, there is no communion with God. The temple was established to represent Christ. Everything is completed in Him. When Solomon and Israel uh, were dedicating the original temple of God, the one that was so splendid and brilliant, listen to what happened. 2 Chronicles 7, 1 through 3. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is 
good, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see, the glory of God filled that temple and led the people to humbly worship him. And you're going to love this connection. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the fullness of the glory of God. The, the glory of God presides in him. It is a person. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the temple, and worship happens in and through him. You're going to love this too. By faith in Jesus Christ, we become the temple of the living God. Worship happens in us, both in our hearts and in our assembly together. Jesus talked about his body in verse 19, and the New Testament calls followers of Jesus the body of Christ. Interesting connection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 27, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We are all the body, those who believe in Jesus Christ, those who have placed their faith in him, are the body, the dwelling place of the Almighty God. He is in our midst. Paul said in Ephesians 2, 4 and 6, that because of the mercy and love of God, he made us alive together in Christ and raised us up with him. Paul encouraged the Roman Christians, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. When Jesus raised from the dead, he rose all the other Christians that were with him. Along with him, he raised them to new life. He builds them into a new temple, the new place of worship in himself. One pastor and Bible scholar wrote, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, temple worship in Jerusalem was destroyed and reinstituted in the hearts of those who were built into a spiritual temple called the church. According to Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, we are members of the household of God, Christ as our cornerstone holding the whole thing together, and we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God no longer dwells in the temple. He dwells in us. And that's unfathomable. And I want to put something before you, church, that if people are to encounter the power of God, I, I just think that is so powerful for people that don't believe in Jesus Christ when they encounter the power that we have in the Holy Spirit in our midst. That preaches to people. And so what I want to put forward is that we become a church that is so zealous of God's power being in our midst, the spiritual temple, that people just, they get it. When they're with us, you people believe in some massive power. And when you're together, I sense something that is just otherworldly. It's nothing like I encounter anywhere else in our culture, but you guys have a corner on this power thing. Don't you want them to sense that? I, I, that, that excites me. It's an amazing thing. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. We worship him and are being built into a temple where Worship is in, in the enjoyment of God is found. This is why the church gathered is of particular interest to God. This is why we need to be together because his presence is here. We encounter him wherever we gather because Christ is in us. When you hear worship, take your mind to Jesus, the authentic place of worship where we meet God. When you hear worship, don't think style of music. Don't think buildings or anything temporal or this world. Instead, think of ascending. 
to a holy God through Jesus Christ, our place of worship. Think Jesus. Think Jesus. Think about how Jesus gave you life, how he raised you with him, making you a conqueror and a victor over death, and how you worship him because you have him. Jesus is the leading authority on worship, and it's because of his resurrection, his authority, the confirmation of his divinity. Truth is the foundation upon which worship is built, and Jesus and his word are the truth from which worship takes its shape. Jesus is the center of worship, and in him we become the new temple, the new place of worship. If our building here at Jerusalem burned down tomorrow, as tragic as that may be, would worship cease? No way. Because worship is not about this building. It has nothing to do with this building. Yes, this is a great place for us to worship. I'm glad we have it, and I'm glad it's paid for. Amen? Amen. All right. That's your faithfulness, not mine. Thank you for doing that. You know what? But it has nothing to do with any of this. It has everything to do with Jesus, our place of worship. And where we are gathered, he is. Uh, Can we press on together with excellence in worship? Can we press on to know God? To feel his power in our midst? Let's show people something they can't get anywhere else. Because they can't. You just flat out can't. Jesus is the priority of Jerusalem church. And therefore, passionate worship must be the priority of this church because Jesus is the supernatural center of worship. And if we don't have Jesus, we don't have worship. God is with us, and that is powerful. The power of God changes people and gives hope. And when people encounter that, I think lives will change, individuals will change, families will change, our culture will change when they see the worship of God as it really was intended to be. You know, the, the psalmist writes, then I, go, then I will go to the altar of God. Then I will go to the altar of God. Well, where is that? Is it in the temple? No, it's in Jesus Christ by faith. And what do we go to? Well, the musician writes, to God, my exceeding joy. We go to God, the rejoicing of my joy, the joy of my joy, the center, the core of all of my joy is Jesus Christ. And we go to him. We go to his cross. We go to his resurrection. Worship is ultimately about rejoicing in, rejoicing in God who is our joy. And that joy is found in the center in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we are immature worshipers. Um, we have a long way to go. And God, I just pray that uh, as we take the Lord's Supper together, that we would simply remember. That's why we're supposed to do this, to remember what Jesus Christ did. He died. He rose again. He ascended and he has promised that he is coming back to judge. And what's interesting, God, if he did really raise from the dead, which he did, and he honored that promise, he's going to honor the promise of him coming back. So God, I pray that Jerusalem Church is ready to meet their maker because life is short. Jesus lived a short life. And he did because there was a plan to redeem sinners to redeem anyone, anyone who would come and by faith trust in him. So as we take the Lord's Supper together, God, I pray that we remember, we remember 
and that you would make an influence on us, God. We love you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.